Polly, thank you. Uh, where did you go? Yeah, yeah, thank you for that uh, window into your life, what the Lord is doing, and uh, as you go from here, we go with you. Thank you. And uh, thanks to Nate, too. Uh, Nate had other plans. Uh, he was not originally scheduled to be here today. Uh, those plans changed, and he has stepped in. If you listen long enough, you'll know why I'm so glad that he was able to take parts of this service. Um, this week, it's my turn to try to um, nurse a voice uh, forward, so bear with me. Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 3, <clears throat> chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Verse 14 through 24. Give attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Father, would you now open our eyes to see what we can't until you do. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see the beauty of the gospel and to be changed. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Some of you will know the name Nicholas Sparks. I've heard the name for years now. Still yet to read a Nicholas Sparks novel partly because, for reasons I don't fully understand, there's nothing that entices me about a romance novel. Um, maybe that's me. <clears throat> but I'm curious. I'm curious enough to maybe find my way to one someday, because Nicholas Sparks has sold 
over 100 million books worldwide. So if I ever do decide, I'm going to start looking in the used bookstores. I think there's probably a few there. In one of his books, one of his many books, he did write this. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it can't. Maybe one of the reasons that his books are so successful is you recognize that. <clears throat> writing about the reality, not just good characters, but writing about real life. If that's what he does, then understand 100 million sales. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it can. It can, right? I mean, things can get worse. Just ask Job. Ask Job after the third messenger comes and tells the third latest development in the, in the destruction of his life and family. Or just ask the sons of Korah, who at the end of Psalm 88 write, darkness is my closest friend. Or maybe ask Adam when he hears these words that we heard not long ago. Adam, where are you? You know, that, that's an episode that precedes our text today. But in, in the aftermath of this story that we are exploring together over these weeks, <clears throat> when Adam hears the words from the Lord God, Adam, where are you? I've got to think that maybe he's thinking, can it get any worse? I mean, he's hiding. He's, he's, he's wondering how to answer that question. Can it get any worse? Now I've been exposed, and the one who loved me and the one who made me for himself has come for me. And I don't know what to expect. Can it get any worse? Well, maybe you've asked that. There, your life and mine is, has all so many twists and turns and disappointments and realities that break in. If you haven't asked yet, you may one day ask, can it get any worse? You see, we have a way of not only, it's not only our circumstances, the things that we don't control, Oftentimes, the mess that makes things worse is our, of our own making. Like that, uh, that job interview. You remember that one? That job interview that you had and you walked out the door and thinking, why did I say that? Or, why didn't I say this? Or maybe it's a relationship that has just soured and disappeared and you think, can it get worse? Will there ever be a second chance with this one? There's a place in all of our lives where we wonder at some point, is our circumstances and is my life beyond repair? You know, Adam had legitimate reasons to wonder that. To wonder, is this beyond repair? Have I crossed the line to the point that there is no hope? I don't get a do-over. Is it beyond repair? But that's not what was on Adam's mind 
the day that he looked back over his shoulder at the garden, now a forlorn memory of what might have been. What looked like beyond repair and wishing for a do-over never entered Adam's mind because something else did. You see, what this text teaches us and what I need and what you need today to know is that ruin, no matter how dark the ruin is, is not the last word. God brings hope into the biggest mess that you and I can make. And I need to know that, and I need to hear that. And we see that in our passage where we find ruin spreading in three directions, and we find hope coming at us in three movements. That's what we're going to look at with the time that we have here. But before we do, the context If you've been with us, you will have heard a few weeks ago us talking about this garden, that there was a garden and a garden plan. There was a way for this garden to be cared for and tended by Adam. That was the design. Adam, created in the image of God, was now to image God, verb, to image God by working and keeping the garden, by being who God is in his stead his vice-regent of sorts, his, his appointed delegate on the scene. That was Adam's charge to work and to keep the garden. We're going to come back to that. But, but then we learn about the fall, and we, and we recognize from the previous verses that we looked at last week that when God says, where are you, Adam? He's coming to a man who has fallen and broken, is a broken man. In fact, the piercing last words before our verses today are from the Lord God directed to the woman in verse 13. Where after asking Adam, where are you? He looks to the woman and says, what is this you have done? What is this mess? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. That's where we pick up today. Right on the heels of that verse, there's not a gap in time. But the Lord God then turns to the serpent. There's no question put to the serpent, you would notice. Only his sentence or his curse, as we might describe it, in two parts. It's right there in verses 14. Look at it. In verse 14, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust. Those, those are pictures, to, those are word pictures of the humiliation and the defeat that are, are, are assigned and marshaled into this moment. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat. Now, without getting into the anatomy and, and all of the, the zoology of snakes and digestion and transportation, it's important to remember that for some reason, the serpent who came on the scene was compelling. There was something compelling about this serpent. Now, I don't know this. 
I'm out on a limb here, okay? But it's some sanctified imagination that a few other people have agreed with that I might suggest that when the words came from the serpent to Eve, that there was something lovely and beautiful and not hissing and slithering. Why else would Eve have taken the bait, so to speak? It could be that right here in these verses, what we're watching is a horrifying transformation from beauty to something despicable. Could be. Makes sense. What we do know from this, what we can say with certainty, is that the serpent, whatever it was and became, was actually a mouthpiece. It wasn't the serpent, but the one who used the serpent. And you can see right here in this language, as we move from verse 14 to 15, what you see, as E.J. Young says, almost imperceptibly, the language passes from the actual serpent to the evil one who has used the serpent. On your belly you shall go, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And oh, by the way, evil dark one, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. It's not the snake or the serpent and the woman. It's the, it's the one that the serpent represents that's being addressed here. So there's a humiliation, and he's, it's declared from that point, from this point on, clearly in this point, that humiliation and defeat is what you can expect because that's what you will receive, humiliation and defeat. But also in verse 15, and we're going to come back to this in a moment, what you begin to see is it's not just humiliation, there's hostility. Hostility is probably actually a better word than than, than enmity, just because we know what that means. <laughs> There's hostility that goes along with this curse. That's to the serpent. We'll come back to that. But to the woman, verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. There's two parts of that, right? The first, the pain of childbirth. I'm told that there's no pain like the pain of childbirth. If it weren't for epidurals, I don't know how we would have made it. But the pain of childbirth is significant in that what is being, what, we're, what Eve is to experience is pain in the sphere of her unique labor and contribution, no pun intended. But in what is unique about her, which distinguishes her from male and men, is her ability to bring forth. And in that bringing forth, in that sphere that is unique to her, that is where she will experience pain. Also, between the two of you, Adam and woman, She's not been named yet, by the way. There's a strain that will exist. As, once, as one writer put it, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and dominate. 
and what God intended would not be experienced in the fullness that it was originally intended. That there would be a strain between husband and wife. But what's most noteworthy about this and what we're about to read about about Adam, that unlike the serpent, the woman herself was not cursed. What she, her life in this world, she would experience pain and stress, but the woman herself was not cursed. And neither was Adam, but both of them would find pain in their sphere of labor. Their consequences of the fall, you see, are aimed at life itself. With the woman, childbirth. With Adam, his work in providing food and sustenance for that life to continue. And so he turns to Adam in verse 17 and says, what we call verse 17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, cursed is the ground because of you. Again, not Adam, but it's the ground that he would work that was cursed. And not all of creation, apparently, but the ground itself is what's spoken of here. Dust you are and dust to dust you shall return. I mentioned in Genesis 2 where this garden plan is first launched and explained that Adam had a role. He had a role that differed from Eve. His role was, together with her, was to work, to till, to nurture. But because of the fall, because of this curse upon the ground, because of the weeds and thistles that now come, man in his own order would never now subdue the earth. It is always unsubduable in full. It is a broken creation that Adam tends. You see, he, is a, he has failed in his role. I was helped by the words, the work of Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book on the church, where they point out this helpful handle on what's going on here. If you were to read, if you were to fast forward into Numbers, the book of Numbers, Moses is assembling this Pentateuch for us. Genesis is the beginning. Numbers is a part of it. And in this work that Moses provides for the followers of God, his people, we do see this, the words keep and work. But what we see later on is those same words that were given to Adam in the garden were given to the priest in the temple to work and to keep. They were to keep guard of the furnishings like Adam was to keep guard of the plants. They were to guard the, guard, keep guard over the people of Israel as they work at the tabernacle. You see, the Garden of Eden, in a sense, is a picture of a perfect temple. It is the dwelling place of God with man. That's what Adam and Eve 
both experienced before the fall. The dwelling place of God with man. That was what a tabernacle was. That's what a, what a temple became. As priests were to work and guard the tabernacle and the temple, Adam was to work and guard the temple of the Garden of Eden. Adam, you see, was not only king, he was also priest in God's world, but a failed one. Instead of fulfilling his priestly duty, his duty, sorry, as priestly keeper and casting out the serpent, he listens to it and surrenders to it and joins in rebellion. Adam as priest fails. So we have ruin spread in three directions, a serpent, a woman, and Adam. And we don't rightly read those verses of Genesis unless we see that in the pronouncement of those curses, God is acting as a righteous judge. Which is why it's all the more important to rush on. <laughs> because it's that righteous judge that comes to a broken world and promises a fix. In the midst of ruin, we find hope. I said coming at us in three movements. The first movement is this. Hope is promised. Verse 15. This is where we come back to it. <clears throat> where <clears throat> it's not only that hostility exists between you and the woman, serpent, and between <clears throat> your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There is hostility at play. We learn from the context here that this hostility is, has two parts, two features. It's a long-lasting hostility. This one isn't dealt with in a moment. It's long-lasting, it's ongoing, and it's also devastating. The word that we read here, bruise, in our translation, might just as well, or maybe better, translated crush or batter. That's the meaning of the word. It's, it's got a weight to it that's important to recognize. That this hostility between <clears throat> the, the one behind the serpent and the seed of the woman is ongoing and it is devastating. But not in equal portions. You will bruise his heel. He will crush your head. We'll come back to that. From this point forward, there's a declaration of war, you see. Two kingdoms in conflict. Michael Williams describes it like this. From this point forward, two opposing forces war in the world. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Abraham Kuyper described it with this word, antithesis. What does that mean? It means, due to the sin in the garden, two kingdoms stand antithetically 
to one another and a contention that God that will pit a contention that will pit God against all that is in opposition to his rule opposed to one another but not equal and there's where the promise begins to take shape opposed long lasting bitter but not equal it's important to note though <clears throat> that this antithesis is not between earth and heaven it's not between body and soul it's not between the visible and the invisible it's between god and satan between god and the kingdom of sin and death and that's why they're not equal it's not two forces struggling for control it's one who is in control and exposing the wickedness, the brokenness, and the bentness of everything that is opposed to the kingdom of light and the kingdom of God. Moses and Joshua and Elijah pick up on this. They challenge God's people in their works to choose between God and idols, between life and death. The psalmist distinguishes between the broad way and the narrow way, the wicked and the righteous. And the New Testament makes the distinction too between God and mammon, between the new man and the old, the spirit of God and the flesh, wheat and tares, sheep and goats. But here's what we dare not miss. That in the midst of that, the distinctions come from the one who is in control. It's God who says, I will put, I will place, I will pl place this hostility. He is the one orchestrating this story that to us appears to be broken and out of control. But it's his story and his redemption. You see, here in these verses, this seed, this offspring, he shall bruise, you shall bruise his heel. There's a picture of a redeemer who will undo the trouble Adam brought us by being the seed. You know, <clears throat> you got to wonder what Eve was thinking. When Eve heard this, don't you wonder what went through her mind? The word seed, you see, can refer to an individual or it can refer to, it can be used corporately. And so, which is it? Is it all of those that would come from Eve would, would somehow one day overwhelm the evil one? She had to wonder. When we get to the next chapter, we learn that she did have two sons. And then she's reminded that the serpent was told that he shall bruise your heel. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And so Eve connects the dots and thinking, well, it could be more than one, but it sounds like one. Which of these two is it? Is it you, Cain, or is it you, Abel? And we know that story. And from generation to generation down to Noah, 
things get progressively worse, and it looks to all appearances as if the seed of the serpent has won the day. That's what you would have concluded at the time of Noah. That's what Noah had concluded. And yet the promise is extended. And Adam picked up on it. You see, this this hope in the midst of ruin, as I said, comes in three movements. The first is hope is promised. The second is that hope is anticipated. And that's where Adam picks up the promise. You know, it's almost, when you read it, it feels like it's coming from left field, out from nowhere. When we read that Adam names Eve. Isn't that what he was doing a chapter or so ago, naming the animals? And now he finally gets around to naming Eve. Why here? There's a good answer to that question. Think about it. Adam has heard the glimpse of a promise that this is not the end of the story. That there will be someone who comes from, who is the seed of the woman who who will bruise your head or shatter your head. And Adam knows that there's more to the story. In the naming of Eve, the mother of all living, what is he basing that on? He has nothing to base that on except the sure promise of God. You see, Adam reveals his belief that life will continue to flow from the woman. And he shows his own restoration to God right there in the moment, not fully. But a restoration has begun by believing the promise that the faithful woman will bear offspring that will defeat Satan. Hope, promise. Promise anticipated. And then hope fulfilled. You see, following Adam's act of faith, if that's what we can call it in verse 20, God performed one of grace. And that's hope fulfilled. In verse 21, we read the first part of it. It's a provision that comes from the Lord. It's a covering. At the time, he had been wearing the loincloths that he and Eve had fashioned together out of fig leaves, which from the beginning were not adequate. They knew it. But God in that moment provides something that they cannot. In the words of Walter Bergerman, with the sentence given, God now does in verse 21 for the couple what they cannot do for themselves. They cannot deal with their shame, but God can and does. You see, their loincloths, their attempts to cover up are totally inadequate. But what God does is provide something full. Speculation is that that the coverings that were made out of these animal skins may have gone down below the knees. Makes sense to me. It's certainly better than 
fig leaves. But it's better in another sense, too. The animal skins that they now wore, I could say, came at a price. Because lying on the ground before them, as they were clothed in these skins now, were animals that no longer lived. There was a shedding of blood. So maybe two thoughts passed through Adam and Eve's minds as they look at this scene now. They're clothed, and, and two things, uh, two thoughts capture their, their hearts and their imaginations. One is, one is a horror. And as they look to the ground and they see these animals lifeless, their response might have been something like, so this is what death is. See, they didn't know. And so God showed them what death is. But also with that horror, perhaps, was a wonder. A wonder that the Lord God would do for them what they could not do for themselves. A wonder that there would be such mercy. You see, they look at the animals, on the, the lifeless animals on the ground, and they could have looked at each other and said, that could have been us. I mean, that was the penalty. But we've not been cursed. The serpent has been cursed. The ground has been cursed. But God comes to us in mercy. not only a provision, but what we see, the fullness of this hope fulfilled is the provision of a covering, but also protection. In verse 24, we read that Adam was driven forth. Those are strong, that's a strong verb form there. He was driven forth, not just ushered away. He was driven forth. What's that about? In the driving forth of Adam. Why was Adam driven from the garden? The clue and the answer is in verse 22 where we read that, you remember there were two trees. He's gone for one, he may go for the other. If he goes for the other, he takes hold of the tree of life and lives forever. Wait a minute, isn't that the promise of the gospel? Don't we want this to happen? Don't we want Adam to live forever? Not yet. Not yet. Not in this condition. Do you see those, those, uh, those animal skins that clothed Adam and Eve and provided for them in the moment were provision in the moment. But they were driven from the garden because there would need to be another fuller provision for Adam in his brokenness, in his sinful rebellion. Because the shedding of animal blood never covered fully the sin of a sinner. Adam is driven away. And cherubim and a flaming sword. I wish I, could, I, wish I looked, knew what that looked like. 
there's cherubim. We, we use our imagination to figure out what those little creatures are, big creatures. We don't know. But a flaming sword, we got some idea of what that would look like. And it was sent there to protect and to guard anybody from ever re-entering the garden at that point. And no one in Genesis ever did. No one ever re-entered the garden. The flaming sword was born. And the flaming sword continued to burn and continued to guard until that fuller, final provision was made. Paul connects the dots for us if we can't. And he writes in Galatians 3 and he says, that seed, that seed is Christ. That seed is Christ and it is, he is the one who makes provision and provides protection. And it was the flaming sword. You wonder, Adam and Eve, why were you not cursed? I mean, don't you kind of wonder as they walked away with hope? But why were they not cursed? It's because another would be cursed for them. The seed. The Christ. The one who is hinted at and talked about in Genesis 3.15. It's that anticipation that there is a great one to come. Paul does connect the dots for us. In Romans 16, he closes that book with these words, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Those go together. Satan will soon crush Satan under your feet. He has been crushed and is being crushed by the finished work of Christ. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, I said from this point forward, there, there were two kingdoms, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of evil. You, Paul tells us, have been delivered. He has delivered us in Colossians 1 from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You have come to the living one, the one who has worked. What would happen? if we were all to embrace the fact and the truth that there is hope in the midst of ruin. It means that the darkest parts of your life are never as dark. It means that things are never so bad that they can't be remedied because there is a remedy in Christ. That he is making all things new, including you and me. Gary Moon is the executive director of the Martin Institute for Christianity and Culture and the Dallas Willard Center for Christian Spiritual Formation at Westmont College. Before he got there, he wrote a book entitled Falling for God. Adam and Eve fell from grace and into an unnatural habitat, he writes, like fish trying to swim in a forest. If we listen in silence, we can almost hear their cry as it echoes through time. Or, or is it coming from our own hearts? Nothing awakens the deepest feelings of terror like the experience of separation from love. 
goes on to say, ever since the fall, every human heart has experienced a longing to go home, to live in love with God and one another. Jesus knew that, came to earth with the news that God invites us to come home, to be transferred. He opens wide the gates to Eden. He banished the guards, freshly manicured the grounds, and kicked out the snakes. But friends, it is better than that. You see, it's not merely the absence of that which is wrong. It's not merely the absence of sin and snakes, or we might add mosquitoes or cancer. But it's the presence and the fullness of all that is righteous, beauty and fruitfulness. That is what is offered to you. Jesus, the second Adam, did what the first Adam failed, and he tends the garden. He tends you. He keeps you. You are his. You are the product of his good intentions and his finished work. And as Paul puts it in summarizing it in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, it's, it's every spiritual blessing that is yours. It's not just Eden. It's Eden grown up. It's Eden in full bloom. A friend of mine said, you know, the problem with the gospel is not that it doesn't promise enough. For many of us, it promises too much. It's a grand story that you're invited into. It's a story that in the midst of ruin, that is your life, there is hope. It's seen in the face of Christ. You know, I stopped short. Nicholas Sparks said what he did. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it can. And then he wrote, and just when you can't think it can't get any better, it can. And that's the gospel. It's the story you're invited into. It's the story we take by faith. That ruin it never has to be the final word. Because there is hope in Christ in the midst of the darkest ruin of Christ. Father, meet us there. Would you help us to see what it is to find hope in the midst of ruin? To recognize that in Christ you have not only remedied the mess that we have made of our lives, but the, but the ruin that is the world apart from you. Oh Lord, we can certainly imagine a better world than the one we live in. And the reason that we imagine it is because you have laid it before us and we stretch with the eyes of faith taking hold of the promise that is ours in Christ into the hope that is ours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.